This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing, produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is novelist Michael Cunningham. He won a Pulitzer for his novel, The Hours. His other works include Flesh and Blood, By Nightfall, and A Home at the End of the World, which was adapted into a film. His newest novel is called The Snow Queen. He lives in New York and teaches at Yale University. We began the interview by having him describe a typical writing day. You know, my writing days are pretty regular. Um, I, I need to write first thing in the morning. I need to sort of segue directly from sleep and dreams into writing. Because, you know, when as a fiction writer, part of the trick is sustaining your own belief in the realness of this imaginary world. And I learned early on that if if I woke up and had too much Congress with the real, real world, um, I would get back to my desk and look at what I had written and think, well, I'm just making this up. This isn't as mysterious and ravishing as a drugstore. You know, this isn't as fabulous and, and, and strange as the dry cleaners. Um, so I get up, uh, I have a studio, about 15 minutes walk from my apartment. I get up just like a guy with a job, get dressed, go to my studio and get to it. Um, and sit there for anywhere from four to six hours. Some days are good days. Some days I feel like, like I'm a real writer and some days are bad days. And on those days I just feel like an amateur and a hack. Um, and that seems to be just how it goes. And did you start writing as a kid? Bits and pieces, but I didn't, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't think I, 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 I wasn't, when I was a kid, I, I didn't walk around thinking I'm going to be a writer someday. I, that was not really, um, something I thought seriously about till I was in college. Um, if anything, I, I wanted, I was much, I was, uh, as a kid and, and as a older kid, as an adolescent, um, I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a painter. I wanted to draw. Um, and I got to college and I don't know. I don't know. It didn't feel right. So I, I was losing interest. I, I was giving up, um, too, too, too early in a painting. Um, and I started writing. Um, it's funny. I, I didn't, I, when I started writing fiction, I didn't feel in, immediately like I had any particular gift for it. But what I did feel immediately this kind of bottomless interest in it that I'd never felt about anything before. Just the, just, just the fundamental problem of approximating life using only ink and paper and, and the words that are in the dictionary for reasons I can't explain, has always been endlessly fascinating to me. And, and I, I, I think it probably would be a little tricky to draw a clear line between what we call talent, you know, whatever that is, and this other thing, this kind of, this kind of endless fascination with the problem at hand. I think it's interesting because in terms of writing, you do have limitations. I mean, it's it's maybe the the stratosphere and where it ends, but there's only so many words. Yes, it's true. It's it's language. Language is a remarkable and vast and incredibly fluid medium, and yet and yet there are only 
so many words in the dictionary. How there's there's a lot of them, but there but there's a finite number of them, and there are all kinds of states of feeling. For instance, for which there aren't words. Um, it's interesting when you when you if you learn another language, German, for instance. I can speak a little German. Uh, the German vocabulary is incredibly rich in words for subtle states of feeling that have no English equivalent. I mean, the ones we know are like Zeitgeist and Weltanschauung, but there's there's hundreds of those, and we don't have any of them in English. There are limits of language, the fact, the fact that there are only these words to choose from. Um, but then, of course, it's not just the words themselves. It's 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 the way you combine the words. It's, it's, it's putting together two words that don't traditionally belong together. There's there's a lot you can do with arrangements of words. Um, you know, Faulkner was working from the same dictionary all the rest of us do. But 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 look at the sound and the fury. Um, look what look what look what he did. Not so much with the words themselves, but with with different hitherto unseen ways of combining words. There are limits, but 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 they're they're wide. I know, and the alchemy of the combination is what's so amazing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, that's what that's what really literature is. It's about the alchemy of the combination of the words that are mostly commonly known to everybody. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is novelist Michael Cunningham. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his novel The Hours. His other works include Flesh and Blood, By Nightfall, and A Home at the End of the World, which was adapted into a film. His newest novel is called The Snow Queen. When you said you go and sit down and some days are good and some days are bad, how would you describe a good day versus a bad day? Because some people who don't write might not get it. You know, on a good day, I feel I feel inspired. I feel like I know what to write and I know how to write it. I feel like I can look at what I wrote yesterday and that I know what happens next. I feel something coming through me. I feel like I am fluent enough to speak the language of the book, if that makes any sense. And on the bad days, that's not there. Um, on the bad days... I turn on the computer and look at the screen and think, "Huh? What?" <laughs> it, I I I don't have I don't recognize this story or these characters. I I have no memory and I have no idea what where to take it or or really how to write a passable sentence. It, it, it that that capacity just sort of comes and goes from day to day. Um, the funny thing is on the bad the aforementioned bad days when I just feel confused and incompetent and, you know, like I'm not really a writer at all, but just a hack who's gotten by with it for far too long. Um, I still make myself write a sentence or two. Lame sentences, sentences that will be deleted later. And a month or two down the line, when I look back at what I've written, I can't really tell the stuff I wrote on the days I felt inspired from the stuff I wrote on the days when I could barely squeeze out a phrase, which suggests that wherever narrative comes from, because I think it, it comes not only from our conscious minds, but from our unconscious, from and, and from, I don't know, the magma, some chemical they put in the linoleum, it, 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 it comes from us and it also comes through us. I think on those bad days, it's just that you're not as available to what's always in the air. 
on the good days, the window is much is is open much wider. Yeah, and it's so personal because it's kind of like a bad hair day. Like, <laughs> very much like a bad hair day. <laughs> because you might notice this subtle difference between your hair on a good hair day and a bad hair day, but other people might not. That's that is such a good analogy. That's right because I think for mo- most most of us, I think you know, who hasn't felt like they're having a bad hair day, and I think almost in, invariably, you are the only person who even imagines you're having a bad hair day. Everyone else just sees you and thinks, oh, you know, here she is again. I want to get into the specifics of the Snow Queen, and if you, when you do sit down to write a novel, if you know just a general premise, or if you have an idea of the character's arc, how you started. I do have an idea. I certainly have a sense of the characters. I have an idea about where the story might be headed, but I never know how it's going to end. Um, Other writers work differently, of course, but I find for myself that if I know where I want a story to go, the characters tend to become sort of employees of the story whose job it is to take it to its destination. And one hopes for something more surprising than that. I mean, I, 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 I think the ultimate goal is to end up having written a novel different from the one you thought you were going to write. So this novel, The Snow Queen, focuses primarily on the relationship between two brothers, Barrett and Tyler Meeks. But there's also Tyler's dying um, fiance, who becomes his wife, Beth, and then a friend of theirs, Liz. And it's all taking place about 2004, 2008 in New York City. And it's really about their relationships. Around all this is the fact that Barrett saw this unexpected, hauntingly beautiful light in the sky that he can't explain. Yeah. And um, what was the genesis of this story for you? I thought, what if a regular guy like this one named Barrett had a vision? What if something impossible or inexplicable revealed itself to him? What would he do then? And I was specifically thinking, oh, you know, a Catholic Annunciation usually involves a sort of giant Christmas ornament appearing in your living room and telling you what to do. I thought, what if, what if this particular apparition left no instructions of any kind, simply appeared and then vanished? What do you do then? And that was kind of the starting point. So when you say that you sort of started with the idea of that, but you don't know the ending, do the sentences lead you there? Yeah, the sentences lead me there. The characters, as they're forming, lead me there. I, uh, you know, I, 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 I work, I, I work in the dark a fair amount, and it, it's not, it's not an especially economical way of writing, by the way. Some of the references that you had, um, specifically um, with Tyler writing music and then a carpenter, Tyler was writing music and he was just trying to get the most perfect song. And he has a mention of sort of wanting confidence and guidance. And then there's a part where you're talking about 20 pages later about a carpenter and he's talking about that gap between what he can create and what he can envision. Right. And so I'm wondering if you experienced that as an artist and if that's sort of what came into a piece of you through these characters. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
Absolutely. I would be a little bit skeptical of any writer or anyone who creates anything who didn't feel like her or his vision didn't quite materialize. We should be imagining a bigger, deeper, funnier, more tragic book than we're able to write. Uh, that, that means that means you're stretching yourself. That means you're you're reaching. That means you are alive to the fact that 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 most like we were saying earlier about the limits of language. You you can as you're writing a novel, you're also aware of it parallel it's it's twin version in a parallel dimension that is more powerful because it transcends language because it, because it's able to convey feelings and states of desire and and conditions of humanness for which there are no words. And you're writing a sort of rough translation of that inchoate book, that ball of fire, that that story that's too big to be expressed. Is that hard to live with, though, after? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've made peace with it. Um, and not, not every writer does. It's part of the deal. And anyone who signs on as a novelist should probably understand that, that um, the satisfactions are many, and as are the frustrations. And part of the proposition is you will always feel like the finished book, even if it turned out pretty well, even if people seem happy with it, isn't quite the book you had in mind. Is that okay with you? If the answer is no, consider another pursuit. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest is novelist Michael Cunningham. He won a Pulitzer Prize for his novel, The Hours. His other works include Flesh and Blood, By Nightfall, and A Home at the End of the World, which was adapted into a film. His newest novel is called The Snow Queen. So tell me about your influences. I'm wondering if you can read a passage from something that influenced you as a writer. You know, I would be happy to. Um, <clears throat> I've thought about this, and there are, you know, I, 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 there's a thousand different passages I could read, but um, this is just a short section from a short story called Emergency by Dennis Johnson, one of my favorite living writers. It's part of a collection called Jesus's Son. The gusts of snow twisted themselves around our heads while the night fell. I couldn't find the truck. We just kept getting more and more lost. I kept calling, Georgie, can you see? And he kept saying, see what? See what? The only light visible was a streak of sunset flickering below the hem of the clouds. We headed that way. We bumped softly down a hill toward an open field that seemed to be a military graveyard filled with rows and rows of austere, identical markers over soldiers' graves. I'd never before come across this cemetery. On the farther side of the field, just beyond the curtains of snow, the sky was torn away, and the angels were descending out of a brilliant blue summer, their huge faces streaked with light and full of pity. The sight 
sight of them cut through my heart and down the knuckles of my spine, and if there had been anything in my bowels, I would have messed my pants from fear. Georgie opened his arms and cried out, It's the drive-in, man! The drive-in. I wasn't sure what those words meant. They're showing movies in a blizzard, Georgie screamed. I, I see, I thought it was something else, I said. We walked carefully down there and climbed through the busted fence and stood in the very back. Speakers, which I'd mistaken for grave markers, muttered in unison. Then there was a tinkly music of which I could very nearly make out the tune. Famous movie stars rolled bicycles beside a river, laughing out of their gigantic, lovely mouths. If anybody had come to see this show, they'd left when the weather started. Not one car remained, not even a broken-down one from last week, or one left here because it was out of gas. In a couple of minutes, in the middle of a whirling square dance, the screen turned black. The cinematic summer ended. The snow went dark. There was nothing but my breath. So tell me why you chose this. I love Dennis Johnson's sense of the miraculous. I love the fact that he's mistaken this, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's this, it's this sort of okay movie playing in an empty drive-in. And, and um, you know, the narrator believes these actors in the movie to be angels and, see, and then understands that it's a movie, but then understands that they kind of are angels, that, that, that he, wasn't, he wasn't really wrong the first time, that, there are, that, we, that we, we receive heavenly visitations of all kinds, some of them actually messengers of God and some of them um, in the persons of Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And, you know, Dennis Johnson is just so great with language. And we were talking earlier about about trying to combine, you know, there's only so many words, but you can combine them in ways that are that are original and fresh and that give them a new life. Um, you can also use slightly unexpected words. The only light visible was a streak of sunset flickering below the hem of the clouds, the hem of the clouds, or the sight of them cut through my heart and down the knuckles of my spine, the knuckles of my spine, not the knobs of my spine. So he's not, he's not being pretentious he's not being self-conscious but he's just he's 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 just he's found he's found the word that just gives the familiar phrase that hint of freshness that that breath of newness that 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 rescues it from the realm of the dull and the cliché can you read something that you wrote maybe it was tricky to write or changed a lot from the beginning or something that you just like yeah, well, <clears throat> like it, like is always a slightly, slightly tricky term. But um, I could read a short section from the very beginning of the book when when this character named Barrett actually experiences his vision, and I think it'll be apparent that it was oh, let's say influenced by Dennis Johnson and not stolen from Dennis Johnson. Um, Barrett hung his head as he walked through the park, not from shame but weariness, as if his head had become too heavy to hold upright. 
He looked down at the modest blue-gray puddle of his own shadow cast by the lampposts onto the snow. He watched his shadow glide over a pine cone, a vaguely runic scattering of pine needles in the wrapper of an O'Henry bar. They still made O'Henry bars that rattled by, raggedly silver, windblown. The miniature groundscape at his feet struck him rather suddenly as too wintry and prosaic to bear. He lifted his heavy head and looked up. There it was, a pale aqua light, translucent, a swatch of veil, star high, no, lower than the stars, but high, higher than a spaceship hovering above the treetops. It may or may not have been slowly unfurling, densest at its center, trailing off at its edges into lacy spurs and spirals. Bear thought that it must be a freakish southerly appearance of the Aurora Borealis, not exactly a common sight over Central Park, but as he stood, a pedestrian in coat and scarf, saddened and disappointed, but still regular as regular, standing on a stretch of lamp-lit ice. As he looked up at the light, as he thought it was probably all over the news, as he wondered whether to stand where he was, privately surprised, or go running after someone else for corroboration. In his uncertainty, his immobility, standing stolid in timberlands, it came to him. He believed, he knew, that as surely as he was looking up at the light, the light was looking back down at him. No, not looking, apprehending. As he imagined a whale might apprehend a swimmer with a grave and regal and utterly unfrightened curiosity. He felt the light's attention, a tingle that ran through him, a minute electrical buzz, a mild and pleasing voltage that permeated him, warmed him, seemed perhaps ever so slightly to illuminate him so that he was brighter than he'd been. Tell me why you chose this part. You know, I chose it because it involved sort of inventing something that that I had never seen. Um, Mostly, it's fiction. You make this stuff up, but but you're writing, and and you you may be inventing a table or a chair, unlike any table or chair you've ever seen before, but you've certainly seen tables and chairs before. This was a little extra challenge in that I, 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 I was I was trying to think of how some celestial manifestation might actually appear and what effect it might have. I was I was uh I was I was I was swimming even farther out of my depth than usual. And it felt like a sort of, I don't know, funny kind of companion piece after I had chosen the Dennis Johnson story that you know, this, in, which, in which in which a you know movie stars tumble out of the snow like like angels. They just they just seemed like they might be brothers of a sort. Though though Dennis Johnson is the bigger, handsomer, and stronger brother of the two of us. Where do you write? Uh, I write in a studio in the West Village. It was my old apartment. And then I fell in love and moved to a more adult apartment. This is a sixth floor walk-up, but, you know, 
windows look out into the air shaft. The bathtub is in the kitchen, which, which, as it turns out, is also what passes for the sink. But it's rent controlled, and I've I lived there, and then I moved um, and lived elsewhere. But but I kept it, and I still go there every day to write. What do you do or where do you go when you get away from writing? You know, it depends. Um, I'm usually done by about 4 or 5 in the afternoon. Um, I get some exercise. I run. I do yoga. I um, walk around. I I look at people. I, I call 17 friends and see if somebody will come and have a drink with me. Um, you know, I, I just I just try to get out of my own head. And although in my 20s, I was one of those sort of, sort of irritating kids who was always like writing writing ideas down on cocktail napkins in the middle of parties, I, I gave that up. I, 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 I decided that for me, it was going to be better if when I'm writing, I'm, I'm, I'm really writing. But then when I'm not writing, I'm not writing. I'm in the world. I'm paying as much attention as I can to where I am and who I'm with. And I'm not thinking of it as material. I'm not thinking of it as something that I will write about later. I found that thinking that way sort of deadened my perceptions a little bit. You know, it affected my perceptions. I kept kept finding myself in, in the world, thinking of it as material for fiction. And that felt miniaturizing and like a bad idea. And I don't do it anymore. When I leave the studio, I don't think about writing till I go back the next morning, not for a second. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My very first and most important reader is a man named Ken Corbett, with whom I lived for many, many years. We we don't live together anymore, but we're still close friends. And um, Kenny is the guy for me. Kenny is possessed of a vast and profound intelligence. Kenny gets the jokes. Kenny can tell me what's what's too obvious, what's too subtle as to be virtually invisible. Um, I, I can't quite imagine doing this without Kenny. And how have you dealt with rejection? Hey, nobody likes rejection, but I think, I think if you are too easily discouraged or, you know... <laughs> If you can be discouraged at all, you probably can't be a writer. I think I spent about the first 10 years getting mostly rejections. I, think I sold a couple of stories, but uh, the rejections just kept piling up and piling up and piling up. And um, I don't like it, but I, I, just, you know, I just feel like... you know. You, you who reject me, you editors, I'm sm- I am tougher than you are. I'm more, de- I'm more determined to be published than you are to keep me from being published. And I am going to just knock and knock and knock and knock and knock on the door until you finally open it. And what is your favorite word? On one hand, I, I feel like it, should, like it should be some sort of unpretentious regular guy thing like dinner time. Um, but I, I'm, I have to go with pretentious. I have to go with high flown. I was thinking about words. And, um, uh, well, this, this, this actually came to mind because I was just in San Francisco and I went to the aquarium and there was this incredible um, tank full of jellyfish. And I thought translucence, partly for its meaning, translucence 
is a lovely notion. It, it's it's halfway between the solid and the and the non-existent. Um, but I think I like the word translucence as much for its sound as I do for its meaning. I mean, you you kind of launch off the solid platform of that TR and then you just you loosens. You just you just you just, you just slide the very end of the word and you and 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 nothing no fricative no no anything gets in the way of all those sounds go to sleep child no worries everything is translucent that was novelist michael cunningham you've been listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at aspen public radio You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.